to Resist and Restore, a podcast from the Circle of Hope Pastors where we're extending the table of our dialogue. I'm Johnny Rashid. I use he, him pronouns. I'm Rachel Sensenig. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Julie Hoke. I use she, her pronouns too. Let me tell you something, y'all. I don't know when people are going to listen to this, but in the Delaware Valley, in the nation's birthplace right here in Philadelphia, it is a hot one. Yes, it is. <laughs> what do you guys do in the heat when it's so hot? I, I don't have air conditioning in my office, so I'm sitting here sweating right now. Is that your preferred habitat, though? It, I, it is, yes. I like it. <laughs> I I'm not complaining. Yeah, you like, you like, like an Amazon sauna. animal. You like it all <laughs> hot when, and humid. When it's cold, mm-hmm. Rachel puts the heater on high enough that the heat waves can be seen coming off of it. So, like, when the heat waves are coming off of the buildings, it's it's... Right up your alley. In contrast, <laughs> Julie, you don't like the heat. I do not like the heat, and I need moving air. If I don't have moving air on me, I'm just a... So when you're driving, the air is always on? <sighs> well, interestingly enough, my car doesn't really... The air conditioning doesn't really work. <laughs> so I usually have the air on and the windows down, because I'm just trying to get air moving. My issue is that my air conditioning is cold, but I, I blast it and also lower the air conditioning. I know pe- I lower the windows because I just want everything happening at once. <laughs> I just want as much stimulation as I can get in any given moment. <laughs> so the music's loud, the air conditioning's blasting, the windows are loud, I'm dancing, we're screaming, it's good You're time. texting, you're responding to... <gasps> no, 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 no. Chat. I'm a safe yes, driver, I'm not doing that. No, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Feel... Strike that from the record. I feel tired <laughs> just hearing that scenario. It's so fun. Um, but the other issue is, y'all, like Europe was on fire last week, mm-hmm. right? London's on fire. The roads are melting. They can't use the London Underground. Sicily's on fire. Spain has droughts and wildfires. The Atlantic coast of France has wildfires. Yep, it's so, 114 degrees in Phoenix, where my cousin lives. Oh, my word. So as we deal with the heat, let's just be honest about the climate catastrophe that's here happening now climate change isn't coming it's now and we got to do something serious to prevent it so i hope christians can rise up about that instead of talking about other stuff that is not as important but yeah here we are in the in the nation's birthplace as i like to call it this podcast is going to be fun i'm talking to my friend will o'brien he's part of project home and he's also um the coordinator for the Alternative Seminary. We're going to talk about the Gospel of Luke and its political implications. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you. But first, we're going to start with Talkback, and Julie's going to get us going. Yeah, one of our listeners uh, listened to the last episode where you, Johnny, interviewed Angela Lamb, who um, creates Hagar's Voice, the podcast um, it's more than a podcast, too, but she works with survivors of clergy sexual abuse. And the question was, what do we, the church, do with abusers among us? Uh, I think the, the, the question stemmed from part of that interview, recognizing that just removing that person from the community doesn't mean that the abuse won't continue somewhere else. So, like, what's the church's responsibility, both Mm -hmm. to that person and to, you know, the church community and the next people (laughs) that 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 person is going to relate to? Like, how how do we think about 
helping someone move towards repentance? Mm -hmm. It's a complicated question, really good and complicated question. So I don't know if we're going to, I don't know that we're going to answer it per se, but let's talk about it a little bit here. What do you think, Mm -hmm. pastors? Well, I think the, the goal is to confront the behavior so that it doesn't continue somewhere else. But that really depends on the person's willingness to hear from their community. Um, and the, I, I think the, the, the tricky, the other tricky thing in there is um, centering the survivor's experience and safety and their wishes in the process and uh, believing them, uh, uh, listening to them above all else. So uh, it is difficult. Uh, Yeah, I think it's a great question, right? Because exactly what Rachel's saying, um, our society really doesn't have mechanisms for dealing with this, you know? And I'm not talking about you say something in a, like you're Dave Chappelle and you give a transphobic special on Netflix and then people don't want to watch your thing anymore, even though he had the most, the highest ever viewed special in Netflix history when he was transphobic. That's not cancel culture. I'm not talking about people talking about something that you did that was wrong and then being canceled. Our society doesn't have a solution to rehabilitating people that are actually criminals, right? We lock them up. And we forget about them. They don't get better. Cycles of violence continue. Mass incarceration is a thing. There are people who commit crimes and do bad things. Violent crimes, sexual abuse, all sorts of stuff. And and we should right now just give a content warning too. We're going to be talking about in this, t- in this section about sexual assault and abuse. So if that's something that you've experienced, you may just want to fast forward to the interview with Will. But... We don't have a solution for rehabilitation. And excommunication or just pushing them out of the church isn't a, is, is a similar idea, right? What do we do with the person? How, how does somebody achieve wholeness? And then how do we center this experience of the survivor and the livelihood of the survivor and the protection of the survivor while mm-hmm. also considering how this person I mean, it gets better? I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's, a, it's not an easy It's a good question because it's not an easy answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you just listed some serious crimes right there. Um, So I want to at least acknowledge that the church is not set up to be um, uh, or to provide, I think, the kinds of intervention and sometimes mental health or uh, trauma treatment or Mm -hmm. like all, all of that. Um, we're not trying to be all the professionals or something. Mm -hmm. Um, So like if a crime was committed, there might, uh, the legal authorities might be involved. Um, But I think we're, we as pastors and as a spiritual community are thinking about um, restoration and repentance and 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 to get there someone might need a lot of intervention from other professionals too um absolutely but we're not just talking about sexual abuse either um 
It could be that just emotional or spiritual abuse has taken place and um, not just, I'm not trying to minimize it, but I do think it depends on what has occurred mm-hmm. and h- how the church might approach the person. And I think, Rachel, you said this earlier, but like, is that person even still around once they've been confronted Once the behavior has been confronted and named and addressed, are they willing to look at it in themselves? Are they willing to see the impact they've had on an individual and on the community? And if they are and they stick around, there is a path that the path in Christ is always to toward um, redemption, you know, mm-hmm. so we as a spiritual community, that's our 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 um, trajectory too. We are a people called to reconciliation. Um, but when you're talking about abuse and a survivor and a perpetrator, um, there's not just one formula that works or something. Uh, it really is a sensitive and um, intentional journey that that a person who has um, been an abuser needs to essentially consent to mm-hmm. to in order to you know be guided along mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to break the pattern. Yeah, if they leave, what 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 can we do? What can you do if they leave, though? In my experience. Ideally, it is good, right? They, they repent. They want to get better. We create a system for them. We keep them from people and, the, and they want. Like that, that requires a tremendous amount of self-awareness and humility that, in my experience, doesn't come from people who are abusive, from abusers very much. Sometimes it does. But usually they're defensive and they think they're fine. I'm sorry to say that. That's just been my experience. So what do I do? You leave the community. I ask you to leave. You're harming people. You know, I, I am, let me just t- run this by you and tell me I'm wild. It's fine. But like, I have warned people, this person causes harm. Steer clear. They don't want to listen. They're not getting better. You need to hear about them. You know, especially with sexual abuse, I have warned people that have been interested or getting within proximity, relational, romantic proximity to somebody. Like, hey, this isn't good for you. Steer clear. And sometimes they don't listen, you know, and that's really, really challenging. What are you going to do in that point? There's very little you can do when you offer the warning and they still go for it. You know, especially, you know, love is, love is complicated, you know, and like it, it, it it's doesn't always make us act in rational or safe ways. So like I, I'm at some point, I think naming them as a pariah is important if they're not listening. naming them as a predator. That's scary to even say, but like, I don't know how to help the public otherwise. And I just want to acknowledge that naming, when, when the church or a church leader names someone like that, it's often uncomfortable um, for people to hear, to hear that and believe that. I'm thinking of a situation in which um, we did that when somebody was threatening to come in and and shoot up our Sunday meeting. And um, people were... Even then, yeah. Yeah, people were 
uh, they still didn't like that person being named for their sin. And so I just, I just want to name that that's a, that's, that's an element that we're dealing with here because, um, yeah, that's, that is, that's just an, an, uh, an uncomfortable element. And I think it's understandable that that is uncomfortable because we've got these institutions in society that like, you know, wrongly name people all the time. Look at the criminal justice system. And so when the church does that, whether right or wrong, it's like, ah, you know, an institution um, is calling somebody out and it's just kind of scary and confusing and, and hard to know what's true. And so I think that's why I'm not sure Jesus meant the church to be an institution like like uh, the other ones in the world. So we've got to be different in, in how we do it and make, th- make that path for restoration um, open, even as we believe and protect survivors. I wrote an article about Matthew 18 recently, and maybe I linked it in the show notes at one point. It was about how Matthew 18, Jesus' instructions in in the Gospel of Matthew to the disciples about how to forgive somebody. When you've sinned against somebody, you confront them individually, and then you confront them with a group, and then the whole church confronts them, and if they still don't want to change, you cast them out of the community, you treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Um, and that's been used to, that's been used to hurt, to harm survivors. The survivor confronts the person or talks to their friend, and then the person who's in power who abused them says, you didn't follow Matthew 18, you didn't confront me directly. It's been abused for that. However, I do think that it does give us a way forward with regard to the abuser. If it's used against the abuser, then someone who is can, can safely confront the abuser can do that then a group of people can. And then when the church does, they have a chance to change. But if they don't, then people know who they are in the community. The whole body knows that. And that's the that's why it's valuable. And then when they're cast out and they're treated as a tax collector or a Gentile, it is as if they have a mark on them because the Jewish community is treating them like an outsider. Um, and in the Gospel of Matthew, they're working this out because they're a very... Um, tight-knit Jewish community that is resistant to Gentile inclusion. That's probably the occasion of Matthew. And so this language that Jesus is using, treat them as a Gentile, means excluding them in the Gospel of Matthew, whereas in Galatians, treating them as a Gentile would be including them. So we have to be careful with the context of the passage to understand what it means. But I think that's a pretty good path. Um, But it should be noted that it has been used to further abuse too. Rachel had a nice ending there, and then I added something weird. So I just want to acknowledge that I did that. (laughs) It was important, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think we should link that, your paper, in the show notes again, Johnny. Um, One more thing I want to add connected to this whole conversation is um, uh, sort of a a correction for our last episode. Uh, Johnny and I were talking about this interview with Angela Lamb and I repeatedly used the the word uh, victim 
to represent the person who's experienced abuse. And um, I want to correct that and use the word survivor um, because Mm. I think the language really matters. And uh, I want to reflect the courage and uh, resiliency of people who have experienced abuse and not just, um, you know, reference them in light of the way that they've been treated. I don't want to lift up that behavior. I want to lift up the person. So That's really good, Julie. Thanks for that. Thanks for talking back to this podcast. If you have thoughts about what we're saying, please share them. You can write to Resist and Restore at Circle of Resist and Restore Podcast at circleofhope.net um, or find some other way to talk to us if you chat or text or email. We love to hear from you. I'm so glad you're listening to our podcast. It's fun to do this with Rachel and Julie, and we're happy to include you at our table. The best way to be, inclu- to be included at our table is to email us, just like Julie was saying. We want to hear from you. We'll get you on the show. And then the, to include others, share the podcast. Share it on social media. Subscribe to the podcast. Give it a high rating. And then you can go to circleofhope.church and find out how you can share money with us. That keeps this podcast going and keeps everything else going in our church, too. So there's a lot of ways that you can connect. And maybe you'll, even you'll come to a cell or a Sunday meeting of ours. Those are open to you as well. So this podcast is just a part of our community, and we're glad that you're a part of it, too. Thanks. friends so glad to have my old friend will o'brien with us on resist and restore will is a are you, you're a project coordinator on project home still is that right well i've stepped away from the full-time job and i'm still helping with some uh communications work at project home I've been there for most of the last 30 years uh kind of doing public education on issues of homelessness and poverty and political advocacy Awesome. And then you're also the the coordinator for the Alternative Seminary. Can you tell yes, us more right. about what is the Alternative Seminary exactly? Well, it's a um, it's been around over 30 years. It's a totally grassroots, uh, informal, really network of people who have been involved in, um, I'll just use a simple phrase, kind of radical Bible study influenced by liberation theology um, that seeks to engage the uh, scriptural narratives with our world today. Uh, It's been mainly here in Philadelphia, uh, but as a, uh, I guess, silver lining of COVID, we've been doing a lot more Zoom classes. So we now have folks uh, from around the country and even from other countries who participate. That sounds awesome. And, and, And just recently you held a class called Challenging Power and Privilege, and it was about the gospel of Luke. Right. Um, And, and part of that class, you talk about how we are misguided to an extent in the Western European church with how we read the Bible. And I want to start there. Just give us the problem with how Westerners in general read the Bible. Well, there's several problems. One is um, the cultural paradigm of individualism, which is a very Western notion and intensified in the United States, which is we read the Bible um, in an individualistic way. Mm -hmm. Um, What is and these are and personally, these are these are important questions. What's my calling? What's it saying to me? Um, my personal relationship with Jesus, but both the scriptural texts 
uh, testaments ari arise out of a community and are addressed to a community. And I think that changes a lot of how we read the scriptural text. Um, another issue is that we, whether we want to admit it or not, we're really defined by kind of a Western materialistic worldview, which um, often doesn't grasp some of the ways that the biblical cultures uh, the spiritual and the material interacted, the political and, and religious um, interacted and were one. Um, and I think, so in a lot of ways, for instance, we need to hear interpretations that are coming from decolonized parts of the globe, from indigenous communities. Um, and then the final thing is that the, what I'll call for shorthand, the imperial church, going back to the fifth century, uh, found ways to spiritualize the texts and remove them from their historical roots and depoliticize them. And um, hence, a lot of the gritty social reality, again, out of both testaments, um, gets lost on us. So with this poor reading of the Bible or misguided reading of the Bible, I'm thinking about what that sort of materialism, individualism, imperialism, those three things that you mentioned um, for how we read the Bible, how does that bring harm to the readers now? What is, it does some violence to the text, but what does it do in terms of people listening to this message as Christians, as Jewish people, whatever the case is, how does it harm them? What, what harm does this misinterpretation bring? What do you think? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think the harm is global in a way that it is about the role of the church in society, the way um, um, of course, I'm speaking out of the Christian tradition here, yeah. the depolitization, the individualization, all these things were the ways in which uh, the church gets co-opted by power system, whether it's early imperial Rome or to or Nazi Germany or to this day, the, the Christian, the white Christian nationalism of this country. When everything's abstracted, it's very easy for hermeneutics to come in and say, well, obviously, God and patriotism, Jesus and guns, um, all those mm -hmm. things go together. It's just. Um, mind-boggling um, how twisted the Christian message gets, the gospel gets. Um, for uh, other more subtle ways, um, when many, person, many Christians are struggling with the ethics and morals of the gospel, the teachings of Jesus, often the viewpoint is, um, well, I can't possibly turn the other cheek. I can't possibly you know, give everything I have to the or I can't possibly do these things. Well, Jesus didn't ask you to do it or me to do it. Jesus asked us to do it. And mm -hmm. if we don't reframe the moral direction of Christian discipleship as a communal effort, as a church, broadly understood effort, then we're going to be overwhelmed and say, well, that's impossible, or Jesus obviously didn't mean that. And so we are not given the equipment to be the kind of moral uh, dynamic justice people could be in the it is, it is so interesting what you're describing. Um, we have an individualistic way of reading the Bible. We have a way that it supports our economic form even. Yeah. Um, and we spiritualize it too. And so we abstract it, but somehow we still get it to support our current political arrangement. And so we miss the political implications of the gospel, and then we use it to support our current political arrangement. Right. You do say that our social position in the West, and I'm going to speak directly to you as a white man, um, yeah. should influence how we read the Bible. So as a white man, what, what comes to, how do you teach 
white people or men or straight people or whomever to read the Bible? What is it saying to us in our powerful social positions? Uh, an ongoing challenge for me and for others. Uh, well, for instance, if we are willing to read both Testaments honestly, it's hard to escape the fact that uh, what the liberation theologians would call God's preferential option for the poor, God's mm-hmm. movement on behalf of those who are the suffering, the victims, um, God's concern for justice for those who are on the bottom and constant critique of those who are on the top. And in Jesus' case, starting from Mary's Magnificat, the Magnificat, the rich will be pulled down and sent away hungry. Um, we have to be willing, and I certainly do, to see our, rather than kind of the, yes, I want to be a radical disciple, to sometimes say, gulp, <laughs> I may be the, um, the target of this. And hence, what's the nature of my repentance? How do I readjust the way I listen to the text and listen to my world? Totally. I mean, and I think that you and I have a lot of the same ideas about this. I've recently written uh, Jesus Takes a Side, which takes a very liberatory view to read the Bible. Right. Um, and I also, I agree with your, your premise that the Gospel of Luke is especially germane to this idea. Right. Um, even in what you're saying, you know, there's a moment in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus confronts someone, not confronts, someone in a high social position comes to him seeking to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, hey, give away everything you have to the poor and then follow me. Then you can follow me, not even enter heaven, just start the process of discipleship. And he turns away and he can't do it, you know, and I just wonder how many Christians in the West, let's say white, male, straight, able-bodied Christians get the same, have the same question to Jesus, Jesus gives them an answer. And instead of walking away, they just change his answer. Yeah, right. They come up with a new idea. Let me broaden that that question, though it's very core. Um, In the last few years, as I've approached the Gospel of Luke, and this was the tack we took in this class, is I found myself paying close attention to that little preface uh, to most excellent theophilus. And that preface is, you know, usually we pass over that and get to the gospel story. But the preface is really crucial because not only is it addressed to somebody with a very honorific title, it also uses this very classical Greek uh, rhetoric like Thucydides or, or Herodotus. Um, so what we need to understand is Gos- Luke is intentionally addressing somebody who's educated, cultured, powerful, wealthy, has social status. and We can debate who or what uh, Theophilus means. The word means lover of God. But my bottom line is Theophilus is a beneficiary of the imperial arrangement. He's got Mm. one foot in the world of Caesar. Um, And is he wanting to to leave that or is he trying to justify himself? Um, Lucas said all of this is said to somebody in power. So going back to your earlier question, um, I have to figure out what does it mean that I'm Theophilus and how do I hear these texts, not as a young zealot disciple in my twenties, kind of wanting to live in the inner city, but as somebody who is powerful and has a huge stake in the current global arrangement. Absolutely. Therefore, how do, what's the work of divesting? Now, just to go to the, the famous story of the rich young man, um, that is such a central text in so many ways, because um, especially in Mark's version, but also in Luke's, Jesus goes on um, to talk about if you've left um, 
brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, lands, and fields mm. for my sake, get it a hundredfold. Um, brothers, sisters, lands, houses. One way to open the gospel up and read it is to see the, the broader kind of Sabbath economics principles at work. And that's a big topic and we can touch on, but it's not. Yeah, we'll Jesus, get there too, but yeah, keep going. Jesus isn't hammering the young man with an ethical sledgehammer, uh, rather believing that he sincerely wants to join the movement and is trying to invite him, that there's a whole new economy. There's a new model of community. So for me, um, you know, in my early days, the, the vision was I have to be voluntarily, voluntary poverty, you know, like the Catholic workers and others. I have to live in the inner city. I have to obsess over how little money I have and how bad a car I have. Now, and we can go into this more, the, God is inviting us to in a different kind of abundance. So it's not a matter of just deprivation. It's how do I live different model of economy, community, shared non-exploitative abundance. Totally agree. You know, it is it is interesting because I grew up kind of uh, in the same context, you know, Circle of Hope early on, The Simple yeah. Way, Voluntary Poverty. Yeah. This was yeah. a big idea, and I think it's real valuable. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if it's all of our callings, but I do, like, I, I find it interesting that in the New Testament, you have a major ascetic figure in John the Baptist who is kind of living that life. Right. But then you have Jesus who's being accused of drinking and eating too much all the time. Yes. Like he's just living. It's it's interesting yeah. that they have these kids. Jesus is living a joyful life, a full yes. life, mm -hmm. a complete life. You know, I don't right. think he's um, particularly wealthy or something, but he's living into the fullness of the moment. Right. Um, he goes to dinner parties, although they happen to be with the social outcasts, but they're still dinner parties and probably lots of fun. Totally. And I, yeah, I, and he, he makes interesting friends across social class yeah. and social barriers, you know, right. um, if you, if we, the, the, the preface of Luke referencing the most excellent Theophilus also begin, he starts by saying in the time of Herod and in the second ch chapter, he says at this time, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Yeah. Um, the political context of Luke matters a lot to the gospel. Right. Luke right. is telling us about the current political order. And exactly. pointing to another king, pointing to another right. Lord. Um, right. And so the presence of Jesus is politically subversive. Um, but we don't hear a lot about that. Right. Well, that's part of the dehistoricizing and depoliticizing of the Bible. And of course, if you've bought into that model, it, you, obviously, eternal salvation and spiritual matters are more important than worldly matters. Um but that's not the worldview of the scripture. You know, um, one of the texts I, I think is really crucial is, you know, what I call the Christmas story. You know, Luke 2, which starts with that kind of uh, overview of the imperial order in which right. Caesar is going to count the whole world. Um, it's not an innocent story. The reason is the census is for um, taxation and military conscription, the two linchpins of imperial control. So when the story starts the early readers and hearers know that this is happening in the context of empire, vicious, brutal empire, and the rough journey of Mary and Joseph caused by uh, these policies is dangerous, risky. That's what empires force people to do. And then when the angels give their hymn, you know, glory to God in the highest, that's all Roman language that um, the, even, even the word evangelion, good news, glad tidings, was a Roman word that was used at times of military victory 
and birth of a new emperor. Right. And you can look at parallel texts from the time that talk about Caesar is the one who brings the end of war, who brings justice to the world. Luke is using the angel's voice to mock Caesar. Mm-hmm. And I would call throw down a gauntlet. All right, you have the Pax Christi, <laughs> in which refugees are made and there's violence all over us. Or you can have the Pax Christi, this little baby born in the backwoods to a peasant family. What if that's the real savior of the world? Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, yeah, how is Theophilus feeling when he hears that? Is he starting totally. to squirm? Is, am I starting to squirm? Am I, do I have more allegiance to Caesar still, the global capitalist system, the American democracy than I wish I had? That's, it's, it's a great message for us today. Um, is Luke, and Luke is writing to, from what I understand, well, let me just ask you, because you're the professor here. Well, <laughs> We're all the professors. Um, who do you think Luke's audience is? My uh, sense, based on scholarship and my own internal reading of the text, is he's addressing a community probably not unlike the, Corinth, the church in Corinth, where you see, especially in 1 Corinthians, but a little bit in 2 Corinthians, Paul is clearly dealing with class divisions Absolutely. in this community. Uh, the the, the strong still, and the weak, what Dale Martin yeah, says. The, the wealthy still want to go to court where they have power to settle their disputes. Um, they want to let this rich guy off who's, I don't know, married a second wife. They want to bring their own fancy food to the Lord's Supper. And case by case, Paul is insisting if you're going to be part of this community you cannot continue you know to sacrifice food not to idols like you know a pagan temple but basically to caesar shrines imperial shrines so and because we know from the text that luke was a companion of paul and that he's a doctor he himself not unlike theophilus obviously is cultured and educated but he is addressing a community where we're a generation or and a half into the movement and a lot of rich folks and powerful folks are hearing this and they're impressed and they want to join. And he's saying, okay, you can join, but <laughs> um, you can't stay in that world and join this. There's just no two ways about it. And, you know, going back to the rich man, it's not that he can't get into the reign of God. It's that there is no wealth in the reign of God and there is no poverty. Absolutely. If he's being invited to a different form of abundance, um, but he doesn't stick around to here. So he just says, gasp, I can't do this. Um, I can't defect from the system. So I'm just going to go away. Later, Zacchaeus does defect from the system. Mm-hmm. And you get a sense that there's a feast. There's a new community he's welcomed back into. I really do think that the audience of these um, gospels and also these epistles is really important. And what I'm hearing you say is in Luke and in First Corinthians, when the audience is made up of wealthy people, the political message is very pronounced right. in terms of its conviction, you know, whereas when we read something like the Sermon on the Mount, when we read the Beatitudes, Jesus is already talking to the lowly. And so right. the perspective is different, you know? Yeah. So I think that we have to really consider who we are to the writer of the gospel or to the writer yeah. of the Bible and what they're saying to us. Um, yeah, you mentioned the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Matthew's is the one we're all familiar with, and it has what can be interpreted as soft edges. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke's not having any of that. Blessed are you poor and woe to you rich. Yeah, that's, uh, blessed are exactly. those who hunger for justice. Uh, yeah, but blessed are you actually hungry, trying to feed your kids tonight, and woe to you who are throwing banquets every day. Um, yeah, you're right. The, there's a radicalness to all the Gospels, but Luke ratchets it up because he, he's addressing the folks who are more complicit in that system. I think that's just an important, just, just for anybody listening. One of the reasons we have four Gospels to give us yeah. four different stories is to give us multiple perspectives, multiple stories, multiple versions of Jesus' life, according to audiences, assuming – because we're not just going for one kind right. of objective point of view, which would really do violence to the story of Jesus. Yeah. And that's actually another uh, Western bias, the notion that we have to objectively interpret these texts, um, that if we do our right hermeneutical work, here is what it means. Here, The commentary will say, okay, this means this, therefore. But I think um, one of the things we're learning, especially from um, decolonizing communities in the South, is the, the, um, the Southern um, planet. Uh, we cannot not interpret these in our context, whether we know it or not. And it's simply, I think, important to do that and acknowledge that we're doing that. Um, and that's why communities and struggle are going to hear things different, but they're also making the immediate connections. And I guess that's why it struck me a few years ago that Luke is probably the gospel uh, we privileged North Americans need to hear because we, our context is that we are embedded in this, um, this imperial world. So I really love this this part of what you were writing. Um, as 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 we hear a new way to read the Bible, a new way to read the Gospel of Luke, and to be convicted, you say it's not good enough for to be good progressive and liberal Christians who claim to stand in solidarity with the poor and the marginalized, while we continue to be complicit and benefit from American Christian nationalism and pro-imperial theology. We can't just read the right books. You'll go on to say from the social margins without acknowledging our role in oppressive structures and doing the hard work of grappling with and dispossessing ourselves of complicity. So if you think the right way, you read the right way, you vote the right way, you have the right bumper stickers, whatever the case is, you're saying, no, that's not good enough. You actually have to do something. You actually have to change. You have to see how you're complicit. You know, if you say, Black Lives Matter, but you're still benefiting from white supremacy, that's, that doesn't work, right? That's hypocrisy. Right. Yeah. And this is really hard work. And I, um, just in the last few years, I myself have recognized how much deeper I need to go in a lot of this. Um, so I am trying to open up the alternative seminary, uh, which is addressed mainly progressive liberal white folks or moderate white folks um, need to hear a more radical message. But I think we need to be challenged with the voices of folks on the margins. So um, for the for a couple of years now, we've been doing some classes. Uh, for instance, Reverend Naomi Washington Leapard has led a couple of classes in deconstructing uh, white Christian America. Those are hitting hard. And I, as a white person, need to hear that. And um, what's the work of sort of displace? Sometimes it's simple geography. How am I displacing myself? so that I'm accountable to community that isn't all white progressives. How am I, am I willing to put myself in spaces where my whiteness is called, where I'm going to be uncomfortable? What are disciplines I can do that um, 
which I'm intentionally not asserting the kind of control and leadership that would come natural to me. Mm. Those are very small steps. Um, But it's a constant process of discernment, the work of noticing uh, where our uh, supremacy, our privilege is at work. And every time it gets noticed to try to expand our, our consciousness of it and to say, where would that take me? terms of my behaviors and my lifestyle. Absolutely. I love what you're saying. And I love the, that continued work of uh, not salvation, but really sanctification. We're moving toward becoming more whole and more like Jesus. And that's a lifelong process. And I think that's just important for us to hear. A lot of times I hear Christians say things like, oh, well, once I'm saved, then I don't need to do anything more. You know, the grace of God covers me. And Paul tells us, well, that isn't a license to sin. Don't go on sinning. Now we're going to change. Now we're going to grow, not because of because because we're afraid of condemnation, but but because we've been transformed. And let's keep transforming one another as we move towards this uh, new wholeness in Jesus. So interesting. The only the only use of the word salvation in the Gospel of Luke is when Zacchaeus engages in the jubilee redistribution of all the exploitative wealth he has gotten. Jesus says two important things. He says, this, this too is a child of Abraham. And that's important because his, his dealings with Roman taxation have made him unclean and an enemy of, of his people. And then he says, and salvation has come to this house. He has defected from the old economy exploitative, based on power systems, uh, that ended up causing him exclusion from a meaningful community. And by doing the uh, action that goes way back to the Torah of redistributing wealth, he is also reengaging in a holy community. Absolutely. And, you know, I write about this a little bit, and I've heard it before in other books, but when Zacchaeus is giving away his money and in restoring people, you know, That is not a far shot from something like uh, reparations for slavery and redlining. Yes. Yeah. You know, that this kind of. Call that salvation. It's amazing. Yeah. And I think that's, a, and, 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 you know, I don't, this is just an interesting idea, but like. Yeah. When we, when I, I think when we give Anselm a real reading regarding satisfaction, we can see that forgiveness and repentance requires a satisfaction of some sort. So right. in, in, in many ways, it's not good enough to say, I'm sorry. It's not good enough right. to say, forgive me. We actually have to pay something, offer something, you know, otherwise it's what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace, right? They're actually restore something. What we've done, our sins in one way or another entail violence, hurt, damage, whether it's at a very personal level or at a social level. So, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. It doesn't do anything. But what? how do we restore? How do we heal? How do we make whole that which was broken, which usually entails what's broken in ourselves? Yeah, it heals us, so, too. Um, yeah. So reparations um, is a spiritual act to acknowledge that there's a deep brokenness in this society, including in, in folks who call themselves white. <laughs> um, and what's the restoration, the the, the spiritual, social, communal, political, and financial restoration that has to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely agree with you. Um, And so for Americans, we really have to consider things like reparations for slavery, but also like if our apologies to the uh, Native community end at that and not rights to land 
rights to human rights and so on, um, yeah. we're really missing the mark. You know, the Supreme Court just codified a ruling against native land. So they took away more than, than the little that we had given them. And so pay attention to how the, the powers work. And unfortunately, like you're saying, there is such an, especially a white evangelical endorsement of the furthering of American Christian uh, nationalism and empire that um, we really miss the mark, especially when we, I would say, just read, read Luke plainly. It's yes. not, it, it is, it isn't even um, a complicated hermeneutic in my opinion. Uh, you know, I was just uh, back in my hometown of Rockford, Illinois, visit for a uh, royal service for a stepbrother, and all of my siblings and step-siblings uh, went through this kind of uh, drug addict, hippie, runaway to California period, and they all became born-again Jesus freaks in the early oh, wow. 70s during the Jesus movement. Well, now they're, um, you know, very committed Christians, but they are part of the religious right, and I've known that, and so we, when I visit, we tiptoe around the various spiritual landmines of possible conversation points. But this time I've noticed how deeply they're into Christian nationalism. <gasps> I realized. And that's scary stuff. So what um, do you do? Hold on a second. Yeah. I gotta ask you this. Yes. Far right Christian nationalists are your family members. Yes. So how do you this this wasn't a subject for the interview, but how do you engage do you engage? Do you talk? Do you just say I'm not doing this because well, obviously this, there's this stuff's on your mind. There's yeah. to approach this. Um, it's also true with uh, my partner Didi's um, family, uh, maybe not Christian nationalists, but very conservative. So one principle for me is I want to listen. Um, I want to be open to. I want to learn aspects of Christian faith that maybe strengthen me and share what I can. Uh, that's the ideal version. But as it gets deeper into actual Christian nationalism, uh, but well, then the next level would be let's just avoid all this because we care about each other. And I'm realizing that I'm not sure that's the best tact anymore. But when it gets to this level, um, yeah, I'm not sure. It's really hard. I guess you, you said something a minute ago that's really important, which is if we can engage Christians are more conservative and you know there's some who it's not worth engaging at some point but i totally agree can we not so much debate the issues but say let's read scripture together and also let's talk about you know what we fear what we value um why passionate about this versus that i've had a couple interesting talks with some family members that seem to gravitate a little bit more to some common ground but um I, I'm really challenged on how the alternative seminary could do this, which is to invite folks who are more conservative and just let's go to the text and talk it through. Yeah, I mean, I think a question we have to answer is how did these people become radicalized in this way? Yeah. Um, how did they get here? So then how do you get out of it? You know, what are the right. forces? And we're dealing with significant political forces that are shaping our minds. Yes. Um, it's just hard. It's very, and, and, and the, uh, it's a torrent that we're up against the real title force. Um, yeah. One of the most important moments in the alternative seminary many years ago that convinced me how crucial this is. Uh, this was um, in the uh, mid to late nineties when a lot of younger people were starting to come. And uh, a lot of them to just be very clear about it were influenced by Shane Claiborne's book, the Irresistible Revolution. 
Um, and they were coming out of a sort of a stodgy, closed-minded, conservative evangelicalism, and yet they're groping for some breath of fresh air, something, rather than just rejecting it. And uh, Shane mentions the alternative seminary, so a lot of folks started coming. And there's Same one thing happened with Circle of Hope, too, by the sure. way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Shane did a great job in shaking things up. So we're at a table, and um, I'm talking about Matthew 11, when John sends his disciples from prison to ask Jesus, are you the one to come? Now, this is amazing. John is about to give his head, his head's about to roll because he poured his life into this and he's still not sure. He still needs to know, or should we wait for another one? Or did I blow it? Or how could I have gotten this wrong? And so they come and they ask the question, are you the one? I mean, it's a pretty yes or no question, but as Jesus always does, it's something I call the pedagogy of Jesus. He avoids the straight answer, and he says instead, well, tell John what you have seen and heard. Beautiful. The blind see, the mm-hmm. lame walk, mm-hmm. the dead are his life, good news is preached to the poor. Oh, and by the way, don't worry about me so much. Blessed are the ones who don't, for whom I am not a stumbling boy. It's just an astonishing uh, passage, and, it, and when we're going over it, a young woman pounds her fist on the table and says, yes. And like, that's what I needed to hear. Um, That when we get caught up in the doctrine and the teachings and we have to define them, right or wrong is the nuances of what's ultimately an intellectual idea. Jesus is this and not that. Jesus means this. And and rather there's kind of this existential to what happens in life where the power of this is. It's the work and act of discipleship that doesn't, can't be reduced to an answer. You know, the reign of God is mysterious, not that it's secret, it's that, and again, the Western tradition, we need to know the objective truth. I'm done with that. We need to follow Jesus because something deep stirs within us. Some deep hunger is there, and we follow by the active work, stumbling, imperfect, getting it wrong sometimes, willing to grow, but... um, that's where my faith is. And I think a lot of people want that dynamic lived faith. Totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. The fruits of the gospel that, that Jesus is listing off are the best evidence for God. And, and the love- healing, restoring work, you know, life coming back and social life coming back, good news preached to the poor. And another issue about, you know, how has this happened is, again, geography. I think what we're seeing the sociologists say um, both geographically and exacerbated by social media, is people are more and more in these enclaves. Mm. And that's a problem because if I go back to a statement from Stokey Carmichael, your politics is what you see out your front window. And, um, you know, in humility and all my befuddledness, that was a choice that Didi and I made early on. We want to be live in a place where social vulnerability is always there. And this was a big part of working at Project Home. Just the lives of people who have been so brutalized just becomes part of my life. And um, that's been transformative to me. And that's why Jesus invites people to these new communities. And that's not just the image of, you know, the blind blind and the lame at the dinner party is not just a nice poetic image. Um, We've got to find ways to break out of our, our middle class social worlds that are sort of working and everything seems fine. We've got to go and displace ourselves and be willing to feel pain from those um, who are struggling because we have pain anyway. Right. So being in connection with people whose pain is very social 
in a way invites vulnerability out of us. So I think that's that's when real transformation, personal, communal, and even social can happen. You mentioned this earlier, and I want to get to it here. What's the difference between um, conventional economics, capitalist economics, and what you and also Ched Myers call Sabbath economics? And how do we apply that today? <laughs> well, it's a huge topic, but over the past 20, 30 years, more and more people have been drawn to the economic vision of both Testaments, which in a way is rooted in the story of manna. When the slaves are leaving Egypt, obviously right. a top-down uh, pyramidical structure with all the power and the money at the top, uh, upheld by slavery, um, violence is at the root of this unjust economic system. And then when they're hungry in the desert and they cry out, God says, I will, I will feed them, but I will test them. And the business of manna isn't just that, oh my gosh, God rained bread down in the egg. No, he has this whole set of instructions. Take only what you need. Do not hoard. If your tribe is a little bigger, take a little more. If it's just you and your sister, take a little bit less. Um, so they're hungry, you know, and they're desperate for food. It suddenly shows up tonight and God says, don't take any more than what you need today. Now, totally. of course, a few of them are a little nervous. They're not sure. They want to trust. But so they hoard a little bit. And the Torah says, and it, what was left over in the next morning was filled with maggots. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. That's the beginning of a whole new system, which is. The earth is not Pharaoh's, it's God's. God gives graciously, and we organize our community so that everybody has access to what they need. No more, no less. And that model becomes enshrined when they finally get the Sinai and the covenant code, the seventh day, the Sabbath rest. It's not just all work, it's work and rest. The redistribution every seven years, uh, release of land, of debt, um, and then the Jubilee, release of wealth. God has a holy vision of human economy that Paul brings up again in when he cites the man of store in second Corinthians, there should be enough for everybody. There should be an abundance of creation that can be shared. If we, if things go wrong or if human sinfulness enters, yes, there will be stretches of an economy where some start to get wealthy and some don't. And a structure is put in, fix it, fix it periodically, fix it communally. Fix it systematically. Um, so the Bible isn't just anti-wealth, anti-poverty, it's anti-wealth too, not because wealth is bad and poverty is good, but because the vision of the Sabbath economics, which I think is totally enshrined in the reign of God, is this community, a community that's, that's committed to each other, practices Sabbath worship as well, lets the land rest, um, also make sure there's enough for everybody. It's a powerful vision. I think I think we see that in the Old Testament, and I think we also see it in Acts one and in the Church of Jerusalem yes. and how they act. Yes. Right? That's the that's right away. And, and as far as I can tell, the only recorded smiting in the New Testament is when Ananias and Sapphira don't do that yeah, when they, they lie they about their resources. Exactly. Back. Also, and this is not well known, but if you read the first five six centuries of church teachings. They are powerful about economics and wealth and um, greed. Uh, some of the early church fathers, sick and mothers, would say things like, how is it that God gives the air and the water for everyone? Um, so how can it be that some have more than others? And, right. you know, the wealth that you have, the extra coat in your closet is stolen from the one who has no coat. So this vision was important to the church early on. They got it, that the new community which is transformed by the Holy Spirit is also one that distributes 
its goods. And there's a curious little thing in Acts, which of course is volume two of Luke, that the verb used when the spirit comes down and spreads out on everybody's heads is the same verb distribute that's used when folks give everything to the apostles and they that's, distribute. That's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, so it's a spiritual reality and it is an economic reality and there's no difference. That makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the spiritual reality, the material reality, they go together. And, and you also say they go together in terms of mercy and forgiveness, which are really yes. the cornerstone of our faith, that right. we are forgiven and God's mercy and grace is granted to us and, and and again, this is a place where the Westerners miss it. We take this um, freeing of the captives and this 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 um, pardon that we get from God for our own sin. And then when it comes to our criminal justice system, we support mass incarceration. Yes. Why do Christians miss the point so radically in terms of this grace that we're getting from God and then an inability to offer it? in our uh, criminal justice system where people get locked up for petty crimes, but also when people do violent crimes, there is no real plan to rehabilitate them. Right. Yeah. This is one of the toughest nuts to crack because Christians, conservative Christians are among the toughest law and order folks Mm -hmm. and among the toughest, though there are, there are exceptions, even somebody like Chuck Colson, the old uh, Nixon Watergate guy, worked really hard at prison fellowship and tried to inst- oh, insert a very different vision of, of real reformation within church uh, prison systems. But the vast majority are tough on crime. Um, and then you've got the guns piece. But I think part of um, the corruption of the faith through, this is going to complicate point, but let me see if I can get it simply, through kind of the imperial co-optation is that um, when the faith gets rooted in power systems, that's when uh, doctrine becomes more important. This is right doctrine. This is wrong doctrine because it's a matter of control and power, right? Uh, you're not the right believer, says the one who is the right believer. Right. So we're, we use violence against you, the source of the European wars. Um, but similarly, in the moral domain, the, the moral model becomes very absolute right and wrong. And I think that, and, and a radical gospel mercy um, scares people. You know, the, the story of the um, prodigal son, when that father let his drug addict, wild, crazy, crackhead son into the country club, you know, he would have been ashamed, scandalized. Um, and his fellow wealthy people would have assumed, no, no, obviously that's, that son is gone. He, he's a reject. We all talk about how terribly he is. And you did the right thing by throwing him out. But when he welcomes him back and throws a party for him, that has reper- repercussions on the whole social order. That father is taking shame on himself. And the older son represents the old moral worldview. There is right. There is wrong. Mm. And it's not that the older son is evil. It's that he's like the way we've all been trained. And if right and wrong aren't clear and aren't clearly dealt with power, those who can adjudicate, those who can control, those who can reward and punish, the whole system's going to go. And it's true. The radical mercy of Jesus and of God does break down systems. Um, everybody's invited to the party. And it's a real, it, it doesn't mean moral relativism. It mean, you know, I, I think our, our Christian culture in the West really has a 
explored what mercy is. It's kind of, again, very, it's a very personal thing. I will be kind to you. It's also a radical social vision, mercy and forgiveness. Yep. So we, we often miss the point that there is a material consequence to the gospel and to the Bible. We spiritualize it. We individualize it. But if we look at it, it can be a communal project that actually impacts our local communities and our global communities. Um, and I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the, the consequences of bad biblical interpretation are literally deadly. Absolutely. And, and I here I'm getting into too much of right and wrong, but I think trying to grapple with the more liberating aspects of the story, which to me... <laughs> As you read it, it seems to be pretty clear. I totally agree. I think can bring about some level of restoration, healing, uh, human community um, in ways that we all yearn for. Amen. I agree with you. I want to end by by asking you for some resources that can extend our um, learning. You've given me some articles that you've written about prayer and about yeah. um, mercy and forgiveness. Um, Ched Myers on Sabbath economics. What other resources for liberation theology um, would you recommend to us? Uh, wow. Um, there's so many out there. Um, one that's a little bit particular, but I think um, it's something that maybe like Christian America needs to read is James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree, mm -hmm. in which from an African-American perspective, he says, wow, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, we know what that means. Uh, paralegal groups that execute to make a public statement. And it, it takes one of the more core Christian images, which has been highly spiritualized, highly depoliticized, and makes a direct connection to a strand of violence in our culture. And that breaks some things open. In general, I think we need to be reading more um, non-white, non-male, uh, voices, whether it's from the global South, whether it's from the queer community, feminist communities, um, at the very least to be shaken up. Absolutely agree. Our kind of, this is what biblical inter interpretation looks like. This is what sound theology is. Um, there's, for instance, a new uh, a native Bible that's been produced uh, that is fascinating to read. Uh, put together by various indigenous uh, scholars. Uh, and just reading that, the text is um, fascinating. Excellent. Yeah. Um, boy, there's so much more uh, that I could get into. Uh, yeah, Chad has done some important work at the Bartimaeus Institute. In fact, the, the Bartimaeus Institute on that the Chad and Elaine ends runs in California, I think, is a really good uh, bibliography. Oh, good. Um, we'll link that too then. Yeah. Um, it's pcm.org, um, I think. But uh, yeah, they have an excellent uh, bibliography that, that looks at the voices outside the margins, as well as some of the work the mainstream white males have been trying to do uh, in ways that speaks from the inside of our imperial um, colonization. Excellent. Well, thanks again, um, Will. What's a good way for us to follow what the Alternative Seminary is doing or what you're up to? Uh, we do have a horrifically out-of-date website <laughs> that I'm <laughs> promising myself we're going to get going again, uh, which is uh, alternativeseminary.net. Um, for the most part, the Alternative Seminary really operates just through an email list that when we do some new courses, we 
people and you can sign up know. for it on the website. Yeah, uh, not on the website, but I got to make that happen. So people can email me personally if they're interested. And that's uh, willobrien59 at gmail.com. Cool. Well, the, we'll yeah, we'll get, um, I'll be sure to put that in the notes too. Yeah, I'm uh, right now as I'm continuing my same personal grappling with these issues, I, I think I'm going to do a course on the Sermon on the Mount this um this fall and given the post COVID thing, I, I'd like to regather people around a table here in Philly and I might do a second version online as well. Awesome. Um, because, you know, that this uh, emergence into Christian nationalism back in my hometown kind of shook me up. Uh, I mm. know it's out there, but mm. to see it right there, to read this little watchman's decree and, you know, fighting against all enemies is, uh, totally. So we got to get, got to get deep into this stuff. So, yeah. and I appreciate what the work you're doing and, listeners and viewers and uh you know god has always had the, the stirrings the re- revolutionary radical stirrings are happening and we just have to bring people together um and we don't have to get it right totally <laughs> totally thing because if we and this is the white male thing we have to get radical christianity right well that's that's a power move too no we have to stumble along following jesus amen amen thanks a lot will thanks for this conversation it's good to have you on the show it's great to be here, John. Keep up uh, the liberating work and the hope and the coolness in these hot days. <laughs> Thanks, man. All right. Take care. Wonderful. We like to end every episode of Resist and Restore with a section on what has been nourishing our soul lately, and we call this spiritual show and tell. So, pastors, I I know um, you are nourishing people. Um, you nourish. Uh, I I feel nourished in your presence, even here right now. Um, so, what's been nourishing your soul recently? What are you bringing today? I was talking about my plants this week to someone. So I feel it, and we're in like you know the height of summer. So. I'm going to talk about my garden for a minute. Um, Gardening nourishes my soul, which I've talked about on here many times. Um, But I don't think I've ever actually shared like a a really um, kind of a a big fail story as a gardener. And so that is, it's a weird nourishing my soul story. example but it's a real part of being a gardener that things die Mm -hmm. and don't thrive um i have a wisteria plant that i dug up from the back fence row because my neighbor was not happy about it growing all over his fence and up his tree too and i put it in a pot to to transport it up to my back porch so it could grow and provide some shade. But um, it needed to stay in the pot for like a year. Well, close to a year maybe. Through the winter, I wasn't sure if it was going to make it. Um, And then I brought it up to the porch this spring and it started budding and growing and I was thrilled And it has spread out and provided this beautiful shade from the afternoon sun. Wow. Mm. And this past week, it all died. (laughs) 
I know. I was so sad. Um, Get to the nourishing. I know. The reason I'm sharing this, that it's nourishing my soul, is because I was out there cleaning it up this morning. Like, early this morning, I woke up and I went out on the back porch, which is my morning practice. Before coffee? And Yep. I was, the, coffee, the water was boiling to make the coffee. And I just started cleaning up all these dead leaves and looking at this vine and thinking, what happened? Um, why is it dying? And my son came out and he said, I'm so sad your plants are dying, Mom. And I said, me too. He said, do you know why? And I said, no, I don't know why. I have a guess that it's not happy in the pot. I think it might be not big enough. But I'm not sure. And so, like, I will have to st- I will have to figure out what to do next. Is The whole point of this story is that I don't know. Mm. And I will have to figure out what to do next. It's about learning. Gardening is about learning. It's about paying attention and learning what the plant needs and learning how, uh, like, optimal growing environment, what that looks like and how to provide it. And... As sad as I was to be cleaning up this dead vine, I was thinking, oh, this is part of why gardening nourishes my soul, because it it builds in me a um, some tolerance, some stamina for failure Mm. (laughs) and for um, disappointment and uh, the ability to keep keep trying and not just toss it and give up. So I think that's really good for me, even when it doesn't feel good. Oh, that is powerful, Julie. Thank you. How about you, Johnny? I talked about the James Webb telescope images last week, and they were still with me this week, especially as I was considering the multitudes that are in the cosmos, 13 billion years old, 13 billion light years away. We are so small. The cosmos is so big, but we're all so big too. And this poem showed me that I contain galaxies as well. This is by Rosemary Watola Traumer. It's called Watching My Friend Pretend Her Heart Isn't Breaking. I just like that title. On Earth, just a teaspoon of a neutron star would weigh six billion tons. Six billion tons equals the collective weight of every animal on Earth, including the insects, times three. Six billion tons sounds impossible until I consider how it is to swallow grief, just a teaspoon, and one might as well have consumed a neutron star. Mm. How dense it is how it carries inside it the memory of collapse, how difficult it is to move then, how impossible to believe that anything could lift that way. There are many reasons to treat each other with great tenderness. One is the sheer miracle that we are here together on a planet surrounded by dying stars. And one is that we cannot see what anyone else has swallowed. Oh, wow. I really loved that poem. We can't see what anyone else has swallowed. And we carry weights. We carry burdens. We don't know. Sometimes we don't even know what they are. So why not treat each other with as much tenderness as we can? Mm. That's, that, was, that spoke to me. 
as I was looking into the expanse of uh, the universe and considered the depth of the people around me. Mm. Oh, that is beautiful, Johnny. Thank you for sharing that. Really important. I My soul is being nourished right now by um, Glennon Doyle. I finally picked up um, her book, Untamed. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. I want to hear about this. A friend left it on my shelf, my bookshelf here in my office years ago. And I'm, you know, like, I know she's, I know Glennon has been around writing for years and she has this great honesty um, that is really nourishing my soul. And Untamed is. I'm only in the first part of the book, but she is talking a lot about how the world puts a lot of restrictions on us, especially around gender. And um, she's getting, she's she's noticing these patterns in her life and, and getting free of them. And it's just really resonating with what I hear from Jesus about freedom and... Um, not being defined or constrained uh, by what other people or systems have have told us about who we are. So I uh, hope to keep moving in that direction myself. Should I read Untamed? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a better review once I'm. I want to read with it. The book. It's such an interesting story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but thank you. Thank you, pastors, for sharing what's nourishing your souls. And listeners, I'm so glad you've been with us today. And I hope that you'll come back. And please write to us at Resist and Restore. What's the rest of it? Resist and Restore podcast at circleofhope.net. Thank you. <laughs> write to us because we'd love to hear from you. And we'd love to talk about what you want to talk about in these times together. God bless you. <laughs>